Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Elvis fans from around the world, welcome to another episode of Shaping Elvis. It is good to be with you again. My name is Josh Ward, and I am sitting here in the beautiful WTVA podcast studios here in King City, Tupelo, Mississippi, right down from the birthplace of Elvis Aaron Presley. Thanks again for coming in and tuning in and and wherever you may be on the road, having a walk, having a jog, what have you. I'd really do appreciate you tuning in and being with me today or tonight or whenever. Okay, I'll stop. I know it's been a little while since the last um, episode. Uh, I do apologize for that. And uh, the reason for that, um, sadly, um, late December, well, I guess late November, really, uh, into December, my mom, who was featured in the very first podcast, kind of went down, and um, January 15th, uh, of this year she passed and um, we have been with family and taking care of that um, so as you can see it's been a kind of a rough couple of months for me um, I don't really know how to put into words um, how I'm doing Well, <laughs> um, I miss her of course and the last couple of months have, have been kind of hard But, um, as we say in the business, the show must go on, and that's what we're going to do. Um, But I would like to take this time to thank you um, for those who knew about it and was going along with me. Uh, Thank you for your kind words, um, your texts, your visits, your hugs, um, your prayers, most definitely your prayers, and... um, I would just like to finish out the rest of this season in her memory. So thanks, Mom. I love you, and um, we'll see you soon. So I'm going to quit saying uh, every two weeks. I'll just tell you, I'll just start saying the next time we meet again. We are wrapping up the series for Shaping Elvis here, and it has been a great time i've really enjoyed doing this and uh, i do thank you for all of your support through facebook through uh, handshakes uh, all the people i've met thank you so much for uh, being a part of this and going along for the ride speaking of rides we recently celebrated elvis's what would have been elvis's 84th birthday here in tupelo And I guess uh, around the world, uh, we recently celebrated here at the birthplace. Man, that was a great time. Had birthday cake, sang happy birthday to Elvis. There were so many fans and friends uh, of Elvis that we uh, met down there. And I do apologize. I'm bringing it up uh, and don't have anything to go with it. Just as a quick recap, uh, we did a couple of stories while we were there uh, covering the event. Mr. Tom Brown, that you've heard here on the podcast uh, a couple of times, uh, was there as a presenter, giving us a brief history of what happened in 2018 and what to look forward to in 2019. And after the ceremony, we got to speak with him just for a little bit. Elvis was here with us for 42 years, and he's been gone for 42 years. But even 2018, he continues to uh, amaze us with things. Uh, Albums on the charts that were released, a gospel album came out in August that was released and went to the charts number one. And that was great getting to see Tom again, um, hanging out and eating a little cake. So a good time had at the Elvis Presley birthplace during Elvis's birthday, January the 8th. Oh, And how silly of me to nearly forget. That evening was the general meeting of the Tupelo Elvis Presley Fan Club. 
unfortunately, I did not get uh, any audio on that, but I can tell you uh, we also had cake there, uh, had a great time, and uh, actually got to celebrate Elvis's birthday with the fan club and just have a wonderful evening there as well. So the focus of this episode is Memphis Bound, and we've already talked about, you know, Elvis growing up and and being around, in and around Tupelo, and where he was and what he did and and that kind of thing. Now we're focusing on actually Elvis leaving Tupelo. Vernon is now at the point to where he's taking his family to Memphis to look for work. And we've all heard the stories of, you know, how that is, how that was, uh, and that sort of thing. I thought I'd take a little different route, specifically the traveling route. Kind of weird? Yeah, probably so, but that's just the way I am. Uh, One of the things when you go to the birthplace, um, you get up there, and of course you see the house, and you see the church, and... Uh, the museum but one of the things that is parked over there is a car and it really got me to thinking you know here is a three-person family packing up everything they have heading towards memphis heading north to basically begin their life all over again what would it be like to pack everything you had in a car head north for what would change your life forever could you do it I don't know. Something about that car, and I will say this, you'll hear later on as well. That's not the actual car that was used. It is a replica. But as I was there, I just really got to thinking about, you know, man, what what would I do? What what would how could I just say, you know what, guys, it's time to pack up and go. So just for fun, I met up with Jane Spain at the Tupelo Automobile Museum. Pretty neat little interview here, I thought. So I hope you enjoy. I am Jane Spain. I'm the executive director of the Tupelo Automobile Museum. And uh, it is a museum located in Tupelo, Mississippi, uh, featuring 130 years of automotive history. You you guys just had a great honor bestowed on you, I suppose. Will you tell me about that? Uh, Nobody was more surprised than we were. Um, We really, it was a great honor. It is a great honor. Um, Travel and Leisure and Money Magazine through Apple News put out an article about the top travel destinations in each state in the United States. And the Tupelo Automobile Museum was the one selected to represent Mississippi, and we were extraordinarily pleased and and surprised. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for asking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you said the number, but t- tell me again how how many cars have, do you have here on a daily basis, and uh, just ranging in years. Well, the unique thing about this museum is it is in chronological order. The base collection collected by Frank Spain, uh, the founder, uh, took him 40 years, and he collected 150 cars. They start in uh, with an 1886 Benz, about 10 cars per decade, ending with a never-driven Dodge Viper, um, from 1994. So um, the part of this collection I think that is different than most car museums is the ability to walk through time, walk through the decades, and see the changes, but also to bring back memories you might not have thought about in many years. What, what I've discovered about this collection, it's not just cars. It... Um, Cars are a great deal like music. You remember where you were when you hear a song from, say, 1963. People look at cars from that era, or a specific car from an era, whether it was the era of their grandmother, grandfather, parents, themselves, and they remember. 
where they were. And it's been a real joy to watch people leave this museum with a whole bunch of great memories that they hadn't thought about in a while. Uh, of course, there are those that want to know what's under the hood and that type of information, too. But for me, it's the people history, the cultural history, the memories that these cars bring. Give me an example of what's what's on display. Um, probably our most popular, without a doubt, is our 1948 Tucker. Um, then not only is it probably the most valuable car we have. It's a $3 million car, but it has a rather unique and tragic story behind it that was highlighted in a film uh, featuring Jeff Bridges in 1984. It was called Tucker the Man and His Dream, and I highly recommend that movie to find out what that story is and why this car is so unique. The thing about the early cars to me that's most important through actually Ford's early years, um, so say the 20s, the 30s, I always say to children that come in, it's hard to relate a vehicle to children that have known they could go anywhere they wanted anytime they wanted. If you lived outside of, say, Tupelo, five miles, ten miles. Most people were in farming on some level. Uh, so you lived out in the country. You might get to town maybe, maybe once a month on a cart, on a horse, by walking, whatever means you had. But you certainly, the odds were against you having a car, say, in 1910, even in 1920. You didn't have a radio. You didn't have a television. They weren't common in those days. So to me, what did you dream about that you wanted to be when all you knew was what was around you in your backyard, in your neighbor's backyard? Perhaps you walked to a schoolhouse. Yes, there were, you know, catalogs and things, but that didn't tell you what was out beyond what you could see. So I look at these vehicles as vehicles that took you to a place and places that opened up your dreams, opened up to your options. If you got to ride in a vehicle to Memphis, you might have seen a paddle wheeler and a captain and suddenly that would look really awesome to a little boy or a little girl that had been running through the fields of North Mississippi thinking that she was going to be a farmer's wife someday. And that paddle wheeler is going to take you somewhere else. So to me, these, these vehicles are, were, are, and we don't appreciate them as such, but certainly were in those early years a way to get to expand your dreams and your options in life and how awesome. And then I realized how really important this invention was. So I'm pleased to be here among all these memories and all these ways to get somewhere I've never been. And, and really what you have here is a taste of history. Oh, it's, it's living history. It is say. living history. It's it's not just technical history. It's just not mechanical history. It is human history. Right. Because once you got into the Ford years, most cars were two-passenger, maybe four-passenger. Okay, a couple of the very early ones were very expensive and carry six people. As you walk through these cars, you walk through... Suddenly cars, not suddenly, but over a period of time, say a decade, cars got bigger. They became family vehicles. Suddenly now, the family, they were going for Sunday drives. They were taking grandma and grandpa to a special occasion. Six people could cram in there on those bench seats. And then you, and you look at the 30s and 40s, you come around the corner, and this is, I've walked by this so many times, and, and finally, just last year, I, it hit me. 
why are the 50s? Those cars are huge. They're massive. I would never, ever want to parallel park any of them. But more importantly, they're colorful. Suddenly, we're not gray, we're not black, we're not brown, we're not maroon. We are blues and yellows and pinks and bright reds. And it was after World War II, it occurred to me, why? Why are these cars like this? All of a sudden, in the 50s, we just kind of, what, went wild? We were happy. We were safe. We were getting married, building houses, the economy was good, uh, we weren't being challenged by war, um, not in the early 50s, and the cars represented that, and it made me smile because I realized this truly was a period of time where life was much more innocent and fun, and people showed it, and our personalities were represented by the cars we drove. And, you know, if you want to be the flashy guy with a 57 Corvette, uh, you were the flashy guy, and it pretty much spoke about your sportiness as you drove by. Uh, or if you were a guy that uh, wanted a convertible, and you wanted that convertible to be bright yellow, I'm thinking that probably spoke to somebody that this is a fun guy that wants the roof down, wind in his hair, uh, and look at me, it's bright yellow. Um, if you consider that thought compared to how we are today, all our cars look the same. The 60s, the 60s cars had some cool stuff, the Mustangs. Uh, one of the last cars we took in is a donation, and we're very specific about what we will take. It's not about worth. It's the 76 Gremlin. Well, that's my era, and Gremlins were not considered great-looking cars in my day. When it was offered to us, it was worth about $1,300, so it wasn't about money. But what it did represent that we did not have in this museum was kind of that unattractive little car period of pacers, pintos, gremlins. And gremlins had hatchbacks, so did pintos. It was the beginning of maybe an SUV-type vehicle where you could stuff stuff in the back, easily access, but you could carry four people squeezed together and uh, so <laughs> I think what do you think when you look at a gremlin uh, I won't tell you what I think because <laughs> I remember what I thought back then I had a pinto I was so much better and uh, you know but it represented that era um, now when you move through the years we lost where our cars represented our characters. Now if you go in a parking lot and you own, I don't care what brand it is, uh, crossover SUVs, you know, everybody and their brother suddenly made crossover SUVs. To me, they're small station wagons. They're not really SUVs. Um, but if you don't look at the logo on the front of that vehicle, it, I've seen people do it numerous times, walk up to a vehicle that they think is theirs. It's not even the same brand because they all look the same. So somewhere in our our cultural history, we've lost our car car characteristics that represent our, our identity. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I do find myself wondering, so what is this generation using as their, hey, look at me? <laughs> I have no idea. You know, my phone's bigger than your phone. I don't know, you know. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's, that's a lot of it. Everybody's looking down instead of looking around. So you, so you look at these cars, and as you walk through them, and you start really thinking about the cultural history. Amer we have, you know, European cars. Uh, we have one from Brazil, a, a Volkswagen that nobody, if I put it out on the street and drove down, you'd think it was maybe a... Um, Datsun 280Z or uh, maybe an early Porsche. Uh, it's from Brazil. They needed a sports car. And so 
uh, they weren't importing cars from anywhere. Volkswagen made that sports car, and it is quite a unique vehicle, and, and I smile every time I go by it because it says everybody needs a little personality in their vehicles now and then, and they made 10,000 of them, sold every one. So 10,000 people in Brazil needed a, a better a better representation of their uh, character, let's say, um, and got a sports car, you know. Earlier you had talked about how, um, you know, we as a country could get up and go and, you know, we, we finally got the chance and, and you actually brought up a, a road trip to Memphis Yes. Uh, so what what I'm what I'm looking at we we've established that you know your cars. Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, Elvis and his family. Well, I guess his family uh, took a '39 Plymouth and um, moved everything they had from Tupelo to move to Memphis. Yes. Um, yes on loan at the birthplace from the Tupelo Automobile Museum is a 39 Plymouth, but we want to make sure everybody knows that's not... The 39 Plymouth. Um, But it was important to the birthplace, and it certainly fit with our our, um, goals um, to represent that era for Elvis. when you consider that this car is about 15 feet long, it's holding three people, and all your worldly possessions are in that car. But there goes the journey that these cars to a future, an unknown future for them. Um, That car is a great representation of opportunities, unknown opportunities even, but there's something bigger out there for us that's going to feed our family. And so I'm glad that car is there. Frank was pleased to find that car for the Presley uh, Foundation. And um, people seem to be very intrigued with it when they're over there. We hear about, oh, that car that's over there. can you imagine everything you owned and three people right. in that car? So, and and that that really puts into puts into perspective, you know, everything they had, barring furniture, right? Everything they had went in that fifteen foot <laughs> uh, automobile, and with three people, and they were driving to. A new, new life, and as I said earlier, that's what I realized about every vehicle. It can take you to a new life. It takes courage, I think, a lot of courage to pack everything in a car and drive 80 miles up the road to fundamentally the unknown with faith that things are going to get better. So, um, and they did ultimately get better for them. But how many people got in cars and drove somewhere and discovered the grass isn't always greener, you know? So it, it's it was a shot then. It's probably a, a, an easier shot now. We know what we're doing more often than not. But... Uh, um, I, I admired them for taking that chance. It was around 1948 when they left Tupelo to go mm-hmm. to Memphis, and we all know that in '53 is when Elvis walked into Sun Studios and, right. and made his first record. Right. Which was not really, you know, that wasn't. Yeah, he was trying. Right. But it wasn't really the record that put him on the map. Right. Um, so yeah, there was some time in between there. Yep. That they still had to. As you as you said, was was uh, running on faith. <laughs> Absolutely, and he left everything he knew behind. Elvis, I mean, you know, you do what your parents say, but all his close friends, 
everywhere his little feet would take him as a child, uh, his schools. Um, and so you can imagine this young man um, having to, to stand up and, and go forward with his family. Uh, but there had to be a level of of concern and, and fear and sorrow to leave with people that he was extremely close to had known all his life for the unknown. Right. You know? Uh, so tell me about the tell me about the car itself. The car now interestingly enough, Plymouths were uh, among the top selling American cars in in the thirties. Um Together with Chevy and Ford, it was commonly, the group was commonly referred to as the low-priced three, um, kind of like Ford started the competition for getting cars in people's driveways at an affordable price. Plymouth was number two in doing that in 1939, which was the year this car model um was made. It's a four-door coupe. Um, nothing really special about it. It was apparently um, a fairly common car, and I find myself wondering what did it take to get the money together to get a car in those days, you know, and have the faith it's going 100 miles. I mean, um, you know, when if you think of the population at the time in the United States, Plymouth that year alone produced over 400,000 of these cars. And um, they had the foresight to produce almost 6,000 two-door sportier versions, but this was their main, their main selling car. Um, and it was this car, the 1939 a convertible coupe, was prominently featured at the Chrysler's exhibit at the New York World's Fair. So, uh, you know, they didn't have a convertible, but this was a popular car. Um, and I would say that um, throughout Plymouth's History actually, it was a very popular selling car, and was very commonly talked about between Ford, Chevy, Plymouth, um, and unfortunately that faded away. Uh, Frank found this car in Hazelton, Pennsylvania, uh, from a collector, and. Um, when the Elvis Presley birthplace asked him to find this particular model, um, that's that's where he found it. And uh, he bought it in June 2003. So the Internet was, was up and going, but still was not a very commonly used tool in tracking these down. So... Uh, and I remember him going and getting the car and driving it back. He always thought he could drive. He'd take a toolkit and get on a plane, go where he was going, and usually drive it back. And apparently he must have made it because he got it there. Um, some of his journeys were not that simple, and it would catch on fire, would... Oh, I mean, that's another... Dave's story, but but this one apparently ran well. So, uh, uh, and so we were happy to bring it over there, and um, add to the um, available early years of Valvis um, essence as as that museum does so beautifully. You told me earlier before we started. There's actually a little more connection uh, with. Uh, Mr. Spain and and Elvis, can you go yeah. into that? Um, yes, I'm happy to. Um, uh, much to my surprise, when when I met Frank, uh, one of the um, conversations led to Elvis. Um, as have been born in Tupelo, Mississippi, and that his mother was Elvis's fourth grade teacher. And as I got to know his mother well, I, I imagined Elvis in that classroom. One of the things that she was known for, um, she wanted every child to have good hygiene and eat well. Um, so she 
provided every class she ever had. All the students had a toothbrush and toothpaste, and every morning before school started, were trotted outside to brush their teeth. And I, I wondered, you know, it's a shame she didn't have pictures of all these classes over the years brushing their teeth, or we would have had a, a nice picture to share of Alvis brushing his teeth. But um, she also recognized that a great many of these kids did not have a lot to eat. And she um, initiated a program in her classroom of bringing in a great big pot of uh, soup or stew every day and made sure the kids all had something to eat. Um, when I asked her what did she think of Alvis Presley, she said, well, what I remember most is his mother is a very sweet woman, or was a very sweet woman, and she brought the star for the Christmas tree that year. So that's the memory uh, that Mrs. Spain had and what Frank would occasionally um, share with other people. And uh, uh, being an Elvis fan myself, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, what, what was her name? Her name was Letha Spain. And she uh, became a school teacher after she was school teacher before she was married to Frank's dad. She stopped it to raise Frank, but when he went off to college, she became she went back teaching. And um, from all reports, she was an imaginative woman that I'm sure was very strict. Um, so I. I suspect he had a good year with her, and if nothing else, he had really clean teeth and a full stomach. <laughs> and this would be at? Um, Lahan um, in East Tupelo. And, uh, and she loved. She loved what she did. It's interesting also that you would say that Gladys brought the star as uh, for, for the tree, and that just kind of goes into the generosity of how the Presleys were. Absolutely. So obviously Elvis picked up on that. Yes. And yes. Um, there's something uh, here as well coming, yes. coming back around to the um, to the uh, museum. Something here that I was hoping you'd go in on. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because um, to buy Elvis a lot of Elvis personally owned cars are owned by the Alvis Presley Enterprises. They have their own museum. Uh, but Alvis was known for, in later years, his extraordinary generosity. More often than not, cars. He gave cars away. And we were at an auction, and it was important to Frank to have some Alvis element in this museum because Tupelo is known around the world as uh, the place where Alvis was born and had his early years. So he had been looking for an Alvis-related vehicle. And no surprise, um, the generosity that you mentioned, uh, we found a 1976 um, Lincoln Continental Mark IV a two-door. It's um, a pretty blue and cream. Uh, and he ultimately gave it away to um, a gentleman named Jerome Jerry Kennedy, who was on the, he was a captain in the Denver Police Bison Drug Control Bureau. And he, um, they had become friends whenever Alvis played in, in Denver whenever he visited, um, Jerry and other police officers would provide security for him. So apparently, from what we were um, finding in the history of these vehicles, um, and Frank purchased this one, um, and it was transferred from Jerry Kennedy's estate uh, in 1995. Um, they were there was questions when Alvis gave Jerry Kennedy this card that was that um, a, a public officer getting a private gift there was an inquiry apparently he had given two other office, officers 
um, cars too. Um, and there was an inquiry, a public inquiry, and it was approved that these people, these police officers, were personal friends of Alvis's, and it was fine for them to receive these vehicles. So we're really proud I, to have this 76 Lincoln um, because it represented that generosity of spirit that Alvis had and how that related to his early years in Tupelo. One of the things that um, people, and they come from all over the world, and when they see this car, and we have the original check he paid for the car, um, he bought it for uh, $13,379, which was a substantial amount of money in 76. Um, how could he just give vehicles away, you know? And so I often will explain to people one of the joys of being in this area, this Tupelo, Mississippi, is the extraordinary, I mean, truly extraordinary generosity of the people of Mississippi, Northeast Mississippi. I explain to them by saying, if you've been poor, and somebody says to you, I'm hungry, or somebody says to you, I'm cold, those people know what that means, and they will give. I've had people in a food drive here come in with half a jar of molasses and an old sweater, and clearly this molasses came off their own tables. And those people and Elvis giving cars, there's no difference. Elvis, I am sure, when he got his first car, had to feel like the king of the world. And suddenly he could go anywhere he wanted. And look where he went. So giving a car to people that he knew probably would not have an opportunity to maybe have this particular cool car or a car to take you to work, whatever it may be. That would be very typical of what he learned growing up in this region. And so I'm particularly glad to have it be a vehicle that he gave away. We've got it displayed under um, something fairly unique, and it's very popular, too. We have a complete set of all original movie posters. And uh, and I went to all Elvis's movies, I thought, but obviously I didn't because I found a few posters like, I don't remember that one. And it's a common common thing to hear, which is just outside my office door. I don't remember that one. But we put them up. Uh, a former curator of ours played with some playing cards that were just enough posters to spell Elvis. So we painted a wall black, and we have a massive wall that spells Elvis with every one of his uh, movie posters with his car displayed beneath it. And it's a very popular. Uh, it's near the end of all the cars' um, exhibits and it's very popular. You'll hear some say, look at that, it spells Elvis, that's so cool. <laughs> and, and you actually have a little um, bookcase. We uh, do. I hate to say little, but we, you have a bookcase that with some memorabilia. A, few, a, a little bit of memorabilia, of course. We have the original check, and that is under lock and key. Um, we have um, actually a replica that someone locally built of the birthplace. And we, of course, always, always make sure everybody knows about the birthplace if they didn't to begin with um, and tell them of the experience that they, especially I've, I've been so impressed with all the expansions they've done over there, but my favorite experience is the church. When they moved that little tiny church that Elvis used to go to, uh, and you walk in there and you sit down, and I won't give away the surprise, but it is a surprising but a really wonderful little experience. And it brings you to the heart, I believe, of Elvis Presley and one of the very important things that shaped him through his life. All right.
Well, in the words of Elvis, thank you very much. You're welcome very much. <laughs> At the time of this interview, it was June, and maybe July. I don't really remember, but it was in the summer of when we recorded this interview. And, um, and since that time, uh, I think just after Christmas, it was announced that the doors of the Tupelo Automobile Museum will be closing this spring. Spring of 2019. Certainly hate to see it go. You can read all about it on WTVA.com. Um, that being said, if you would like to see this amazing collection, uh, now is the time. So come on over to Tupelo and check it out because uh, it very well could be your last time. And there is an Elvis car in there. Uh, several pretty neat cars in that collection. Uh you got to check it out before it's too late. So the Presleys get to Memphis. Uh, they find work. And as we all know, uh, Elvis finds himself at the Crown Electric Company driving a truck. I met up with Russian author Adrian Keller during the Tupelo Elvis Festival in June of 2018. Uh, been dying to get this interview out, and I'm so thankful I can finally uh, release it. He has written a book called Elvis Before Graceland. Fantastic, fascinating book uh, that you should check out. Uh, I know it's on Amazon, and you know I'm pretty sure uh, if you come here to Tupelo, you can find it in several places. Of course, you can get it through the Tupelo Elvis Presley Fan Club. But Mr. Adrian Keller has uh, written a fantastic book about finding the original sign from Crown Electric. So let's hear this interview now with author Adrian Keller. Your name? Adrian Keller. And you are? Well, author. Uh, well I'm the author, uh, yeah. the writer of uh, Elvis Before Graceland, a book on Amazon that can be found on the um, on Elvis Fan Club, um, Elvis Tupelo Fan Club uh, site as well. And it is a story about, is the true story of Elvis as a worker, as a truck driver, as a human at Crown Electric. And it is important because that part of Elvis's life is very little known. Right. Uh, very few people were around him at a time. He went from a group of 250, 300 people in high school, many of whom are still alive today, to that small company, and he worked for it for nine year, uh, nine months in 1954. Mm -hmm. And from there, he broke on the regional scene, and well, we all know the rest of the history. Right. Uh, the thing is that this book depicts Elvis in unknown characteristics of him to anyone until this time. So it is unique in that sense. But also um, benefits St. Jude because many of the proceeds for the book go to St. Jude Hospital. Um, we just didn't know any other option for this, so um, there's no better enterprise for it. It is to honor his memory and Danny Thomas in that sense. So um, that, there's that. Um, part of the gruesome schedule that very few people really realize that he maintained later in life early and then later, um, uh, something that he learned at Crown Electric, the way he worked, uh, the road trips that he made for Mr. Tipler, the hard work that he had to put in, the volunteering that he put in for the company. Very few people realize this, but Elvis volunteered even when he was making a dollar a day. Wow. Yes. Um, and part of the book depicts the story of a street sign for Crown Electric that was facing Poplar at a time. That's uh, the low, old location at 353 Poplar. Uh, it happened that after I worked for Mr. Tipler, I shortly worked for another electrician by the name of Dana Mitchell, who's still in business in Memphis today. Well, Dana bought the property from Mr. Tipler, that's located on, and about three years ago, Dana told me, wait a minute, I have a sign that I buried in the backyard. Uh, and I said, well, uh, what do you mean we have a sign? <laughs> what do you mean you buried it, Dana? And he said, it's a street sign from Crown Electric, from when I bought the property from Mr. Tipler. This is about three years ago. And so 
I went uh, one morning, I said, okay, Dana, where's the sign? He said, right there. He got a little upset with having to put it out. And it took three people and a truck to pull it out. We pulled it out, and sure enough, it was Crown Electric sign. It is amazing because that sign was on the building, and Elvis took the initiative to take it down while he worked there. It was extremely heavy, the better part of 200 pounds up on the wall. And he took it down and he inserted electrical bulbs so that it could be seen at night. Wow. Yes, and uh, the workmanship of that was uh, was exceptional. When we go inside, I'll show you in the book. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the sign, uh, I, I Dana just gave it to me. He was very upset about the sign because the... Um, uh, Years ago, uh, a um, Hollywood studio came to him and wanted to buy it. Then they changed their minds and just shot a footage of it and left. And that upset it, Dana. Uh, yeah. I think there was the Elvis production, the movie uh, Kurt uh, Russell, uh, the Kurt Russell movie, if I'm not wrong. Okay. Uh, but in any case, I got it from Dana. We dragged it out. We um, cleaned it. Uh, and we tried to give it to Graceland. Graceland refused it. Really? Yeah, and we gave it to Sun Studio. So it's in a, what Sun, I don't know what Sun Studio did with that. So, <laughs> but it's, yeah, when we go inside, I'll show you. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, tell me, it's obvious by your accent, you're not from Tupelo. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't do things like down Alabama. <laughs> yes, that's very true. I'm originally from Romania, and I came to Memphis in 86. Um, it is one of the most amazing things. Um, I've never been a true Elvis fan, but one doesn't have to be to appreciate the man and what he stood for in Eastern Europe, behind the Iron Curtain. It was all about freedom. It was the idea that a single-handed man, a country boy from anywhere in the world, can give hope to the world that, indeed, each and every one of us can change the world to a better place. And that's what he represented over there, among other things. Yeah. So when, when, do you remember the first time you actually heard him, like on the radio or yes, TV? Yes, it was um, 23rd of August, uh, 1977. Uh, the news came through, um, and uh, I came back from the soccer field, and then there was, um, um, fortunately, a uh, young lady hanging from the tree. She killed herself. Wow. Yeah, it's, he had a, a phenomenal impact, and, uh, but there was a personal choice of a, an individual. To me, Elvis inspires me to be a better man, yeah. and that's what it should be. Uh, uh, the the part of the proceeds that we have for this book, going to St. Jude Hospital, is exactly what he believed. He didn't do that for money. In fact, he donated money to it. So, it's, he's an example of what our politicians and wealthy people in this nation should keep more attention to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what was it that actually got you started looking in and documenting and starting this book? What 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 made you decide to write a book? In the beginning, as Mr. Tipler shared these. With the, the, um, and some wind noise. I'm trying to move. It, in the beginning, when, when Mr. Tipler was sharing those things with me back in '86, '87, I didn't think much about it. I never thought it would lead to a book. But then I realized quickly that it's too much information to keep for myself. I'll forget it. And so I began to record it, write it down at the end of the day. I was alone. Um, uh, at the end of the day, and so I would record, I would write it in a notebook. And over the years, uh, my adoptive father, Memphis police officer, also was a friend of Elvis, and things accumulated. And finally, I said, you know what, this actually doesn't belong to me. This has to be... Very few people are still alive from that time. And there are things that we still don't know about Elvis. Yeah. And the only person who will ever know all these things, in fact, is Elvis himself. Well, in this world, we want to know a little more about him as we discover new things about him. Not everything. We know only a part of Elvis. We know what we need to know, yes, but uh, Elvis is an amazing thing. And he still 
there's so much to be discovered about him. Yes, and this this book he has something new that people will enjoy seeing. How long has the book been out now? Uh, in different forms, in three editions, approximately four years. And uh, needless to say, I'm uh, neither a businessman or a salesperson because I, I can't sell the book. Uh, I can sell cold water to a dying man in the desert. So, uh, <laughs> well, no, it's, it's simply a matter of uh, capitalist marketing. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I've been accused of being a good math and physics tutor and professor and engineer, but selling things is not my forte. So uh, that's your job. That's, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Can you give us uh, maybe just some story out of your out of your book? Would you give us a little tease of what's in there? Yes, so prob- um, perhaps the most prominent one uh, that comes to mind is that is what Mr. Tipler um, thought of Elvis. He thought of him as a country boy a good soul, good heart, was never too happy with his haircut, but times were changing. Um, but he, uh, he deeply cared for the man, for the actual man, not Elvis the musician or the entertainer. He deeply cared for the man, and uh, that's probably the most one of the most amazing parts because Mr. Tipler, the, story he sh- the stories that he shared with me were genuine, honest, and earnest. And his wife, who have, whose name happens to be Gladys, just like Elvis's mother, uh, in fact, the two of them were friends, uh, shared the same uh, beliefs about Elvis. Elvis was a good man, fundamentally a good man, and that's what's important. The book tells how. That's why you should buy and read it. There you go. And the name of the book, one more time. Elvis Before Graceland on Amazon. Go get it, folks. You heard it here. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm guessing it's pretty cool to see Elvis's handiwork, actually seeing where Elvis took a sign and wired it up to become electric. Check out the book Elvis Before Graceland again on Amazon, and I'm just, like I said, you know, I'm pretty sure if you if you run a search for Elvis Before Graceland, you'll find that book. Trust me, it is a fantastic read. Thank you, Mr. Adrian Keller for your time and that's going to wrap up this episode of shaping elvis thank you thank you thank you for joining me again here at the wtva podcast studios in beautiful king city tupelo mississippi and how about this until we meet again i'm josh ward saying elvis may have left the building but he has never left our hearts bye Shaping Elvis is produced and edited by me, Josh Ward. It is a production of WTVA Podcasts. The views and opinions you hear on the show belong to me and my guests and don't necessarily reflect those of WTVA, parent company Heartland Media, or WLOV. Thank you and good night. You've been listening to Shaping Elvis. Josh Ward, you do a great job, brother. Great job. Fantastic. Shaping Elvis with Josh. (laughs)